Thank you for joining us for this special podcast, which is an archive of Professor Gordon Lloyd's Constitution Day lecture held on September 17th, 2019 at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. And the answer was, no, it was written in op-ed pieces in newspapers. 
newspapers. Okay? What we have done in education, in civic education, is actually considered our students incapable of decent thought and capable reading. I can tell you, right here in this room, there's a son of mine who would read Machiavelli at age 15. And absolutely great, but um, and I'm very proud of it. But that doesn't happen to them. You have to feel good about yourself. He didn't feel particularly good about himself. <laughs> 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 uh, he makes more money than I do. Thank you. 
1619. And you think, well, what is important about that? Well, it tells you that dating things in the American story, if you're going to curate the American story, dates matter. And what is the importance of 1619? It's 300 years ago. So anniversaries kind of matter. Not everything. Today was 232. Yeah, right. That's something to really get excited about, isn't it? 232. The big one in terms of those who take the founding seriously is going to be 2026, which is going to be the anniversary of 1776. But in the meantime, we have other stories of cure of curating to do. So 16, because so 2019 is actually a story about. What's important about America? This is the date which the first slave arrived in America. And, and the story unfolds that everything about America, any, anything that is important, is due to slavery. And that's the American story. So I ask you, is that curating the Constitution? Um, well, it certainly replaces 1620 as the start. And that is the time of the Mayflower Compact. And that would imply that some kind of consent, not enslavement, is the starting story of America. And that you have people, they sit down, and what do they do? They write a document, and they sign the document, which would imply that American story is a story of consent and also of documentation, which is a totally different story than a story of enslavement. And and growing and becoming different and better on the backs of others. So the 1619 stories is a is a story of of of, of America being uh, that the American founding, the American story is not something to be proud of. And I ask the question: Is that curing? Now, having given a, a, a certain critique of that, let me pull back a minute. And that is, it is true in the 19th century and into the beginning of the 20th century that the American story was full of, shall we say, mythical ideas um, of greatness and going out west and shooting and the pioneers and doing all of that and everything that certain people did suffer. I, I, as a consequence of that, and, and it wasn't a balanced account. Uh, and so, as a teacher, I was in favor of, of, if I were curating, I would try to have a balanced account. And the case for Howard Zinn and starting the story in 1492, see, I'm thinking of the curator, I have when to start the story. Because the kind of story that unfolds differs from where the birth occurs and how the birth occurs. Is it a stillbirth? Is it a rape? Is it a consent? What kind of birth took place? And 1492 with Howard Zinn is Columbus, and that is total rape. And so anything that happens after that is downhill. So the American story is a story of. Um, enslavement. Now, I at first was in favor of doing that certainly with college students and graduate students because it provided a balanced approach with adults being able to understand both sides of the story. But my experience is that in the last 10 years or so, that balance has gone. <clears throat> That Howard's in and, and the story I told you about what the Constitution means to me and, and the, the idea of, of 2019 has become the dominant story. And so I think that I, I believe in a conversation. The American story is a story about conversation. It's not that all of us, at one time, everybody was in a terrific shape and now we have instability. It was there was incivility from the very beginning. You get incivility with elections. It'll come. Why? Because in part you want to win an election. 
And how do you get to win, beat your opponent? You tell them how nasty they are. That's happened at the beginning. It's gone through. Madison had to face it. Other people like George Washington had to face it. Because he would win. So the people who opposed him were deemed to be idiots. Quite frankly, so. But what I'm getting at is not, it's not that the American story has changed so that we're now lost and, uh, and that we don't fight each other and no one talks that this has never happened before. It has happened before. What I think has changed is that outcomes have not been accepted. That when I arrived, I'm an immigrant. All right, so I've lost my audience already. <laughs> when I arrived in America, I didn't quite understand how you would have the how candidates would, would absolutely vilify each other. Now at the end, they shake hands. I never did understand that. But that is part of the American story. That is, you talk to your
duties as a member of the board. Uh, the, the board is an incredible uh, outfit. But as far that is curating the Constitution. I mean, we could go in and say, oh, well, what is the Constitution? What is the Constitution with a capital C? The Constitution with a small C. And the um, Constitution with a capital C involves uh, separation of powers and bill of rights and whatever it is. And it seems to me that the presidential candidates, including all the current candidates, seem to be making promises or, or that doesn't involve Congress at all. But they can do whatever. Uh, I can go down the candidates with you and, and they and uh, we will ban guns, we will build a wall, we will uh, tax the 1%, we will do such and such. Where do they get that power from? It may be a great idea, but don't you have to persuade somebody to do it? And so it's not just the kids, it's the candidates that need to be persuaded. And talking earlier, I'm absolutely surprised in 2016 and now 2020, the number of first year senators. In 2016, it was the Republican Party. In 2020, it is the Democratic Party. The number of first year senators who are running for president. What's wrong with being a senator in the United States? Isn't the Senate part of the Constitution? Isn't Congress part of the Constitution? So, I am not pessimistic, but I think a lot of work needs to be done. In so what am I going to do with you today? Now that I've uh, introduced the idea of, of um, curating and so the constitutionalism, what, a, what is a constitution supposed to do? Not everything, but lay things out. Um, what I'm going to do, before I start, uh, what joins the speeches? Tony, Tony, you make me think. <laughs> Curating the constitution is, is, is that if the constitution were perfect, if life were perfect, you would need a curate. So there's some understanding of being a curate which suggests that life is imperfect or that we're fallen creatures or that we're not quite up to it. So I think the curate and the constitution go together because the object of the constitution is not to create a perfect union, it's to create a more perfect union. That there are always going to be imperfections. And so the curate's job is to point, not only to point out the imperfections, but to point out hope uh, that it, it is possible. I think that's the American story, and I don't think that American story is being really told, uh, either by the left or the right, right now. So, I'm going to take you on a walk of old Philadelphia and the founding. It seems perhaps a bit old, but it's today's Constitution Day. So, we're going to do it. It's interesting that it was Congress that introduced the idea of Constitution Day several years ago, and law schools uh, were sort of resistant. And I remember that one of the law schools that uh, ran a program on this, uh, the title was, Is Constitutional Day Constitutional? <laughs> Within that area, and there were 400 clubs. 
what we might call a liquidating society. <laughs> At least it wasn't a litigious society. With 400 lawyers for every person. But this was a map of Philadelphia. Now, let's see, what have we remembered and what have we forgotten? How have we, whoever we are, Maybe not we the people, and maybe we the curators. How have we remembered Philadelphia, which is a historical place and a historical event took place? All right, well, let's start off with James Madison. We all know James Madison, right? He was part of the Constitution, this, that, the other. And so let's take a look at, James, at uh, where James Madison lived. Mrs. House's boarding house. That's nice, isn't it? And, Mrs. House's boarding house. Um, Mrs. House's daughter was married to a Virginian, and the Virginians loved to come to this place because they knew they were welcome. And the Confederation Congress from 1776 to 1787 met here. Not in Mrs. House's boarding house. But they met in Philadelphia. And so this became a regular for Virginians. This spot, Mrs. House's boarding house, was the spot where James Madison lived during that time. And a number of the Virginia delegates met. And they were there early because they were the ones who initiated the story about the creation of the Constitution. And when they were there, and no one was showing up, they drafted the Virginia Plan, which is what they introduced when there were enough delegates to hold the Constitution Convention. So I would think that that's something that's worth remembering. Where James Madison lived, the Virginia delegation, this was houses boarding up, women are involved, women were very big in entrepreneurship and running hostels, not just uh, doing silly things, but they had the, they, they, they managed to secure a lot of the, um, uh, I must have said something silly. <laughs> My audience is losing me. All right, so you'd think that that's worth remembering. So let's take a look at what we've remembered, what we've forgotten, and how do we curate this spot at this event, the story involves not just a plot in the sense of deep state. It involves events, it involves a document, it involves a place, and it involves people. Right? So it seems to me that this is something worth curing. Alright? So let's go there. Of, 
of, of a person and a place and an event. Well, what, you know, let's say so, to teach, uh, there it is. James Madison, delegate to the Continental Congress, father of the Constitution. Isn't that good enough to have a spot remembered in your name? Right, on a sideboard. And so, I thought, well, I'll, I'll follow this through. Because now we're getting into the 21st century. How do we keep remembering, or how do we keep forgetting? Where does it all go in this curating story? And so, let's enter the 20th century. This is 1980s. We enter the 20th century. All right, so now the house has been, uh, the, the laboratory has been pulled down, and instead there's a slab of concrete here, in good East German fashion, <coughs> and where anybody can say whatever they want. So democracy has become not needing to deliberate and exchange and compromise, it is stand up there and say whatever the heck is on your mind. Irony, of course, is that what is in front of it is dissent, the First Amendment. But who wrote the First Amendment? But James Madison. So now James Madison, if he's remembered, is remembered by that slab of concrete, but without his name. So let's move on into the 2012, 20 such and such. And keep going. So now, if you keep going, and keep going one more and one more. This is what we have today. Welcome, SEPTA Public Transit, elevator to market Frankfurt Line, trains to Frankfurt and Penn's Landing. So when you go there, you don't see anything in Madison at all. That's what you have. And I ask you, is that curating the Constitution? Well, and who then is responsible for curating the Constitution? Because various people, both public officials and private, decided somehow it was not important to keep Madison's name and the spot, Mrs. House's boarding house, in good condition to remember. There's no way, not even the story I just told. It, it, that story's not in the book. That story I have put together uh, because of research that I was interested in, and I'm interested in Madison, and I'm interested in how the Constitution uh, lives and dies, which means that very often I travel a very uh, sort of straight line between those people consider themselves to be originalists, that you just look at the Constitution and can tell you whatever. It, 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 it's very, very clear. And then those who see the living document, which seems to mean that well, you, make it, you make it what you want to be. And I, I'm neither. And I'm a curator of the Constitution. Um, a, a curator requires understanding the purpose of the Constitution, I think, and uh, adapting it to, not just adapting the Constitution of modern times, but adapting modern times to the Constitution. I think it's both ways, I think. All right, so that's one story. How many stories can we tell? I should stop soon. No? No, I have three hours. <laughs> I want to hear what people have to say about curating. Why is the scene of G. Morris's accident important? I was going to say that. <laughs> you jumped in. All right. Let's move to G. Morris. This is the scene curating from the crowd. This is crowdsource curating, not professorial creating. This is populism. <laughs> this is elitism. It's my what? It's my show? It's not my show, it's her show. I want to come back here next year. Her show, right? You're an inquiring 
Are you awake? Yes. All right. So therefore, I will start. <laughs> All I know is that you can govern yourself and you have patience. Therefore, I will give you the story now rather than later. All right. So, where did you see the Bruno Mars up there? It's not there now. See that? Oh, he just moved it. Ah, scene of G. Morris's accident. Let's move there. So this is a story about G. Morris, this Gouverneur Morris. Gouverneur is not governor. This Gouverneur is French. That was the name of his mother. So Gouverneur Morris was um, a representative of New York at the time. The Confederation Congress was, was meeting in 1776 and 1787, and then he was also a member of the convention that broke the Constitution, by which time he had moved from New York to Pennsylvania. But as a delegate from New York, he was in Pennsylvania, and he was on this spot. Can we go to the spot? <laughs> And on this spot, there is, he has a peg leg. <clears throat> there, there is a right leg. And I will show you a picture in a future which shows you that it was his left leg. Never mind, we all know that he lost the leg. <laughs> and how did he lose a leg? Well, he was in a carriage with a married woman. Married women didn't seem to have a problem with Gunamara. Their husbands did, <laughs> but, not, but not the married women. And so Buddha Morris was in this carriage with a married woman, and an irate husband ran after the carriage, and Buddha Morris jumped out. And the carriage wheel ran over his leg. And he went to the doctors, and the advice was, off with your leg. And uh, in those days, at least 80% of the people who had that kind of no anesthetics, no, 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 no painkillers, right? Not right. Just I'm too young for alcohol. And so off with his leg. He had a peg on it. And uh, that's the story of how he lost his leg on that particular spot. Now, that particular spot, if we go there, um, is, is, is right on one of those cobblestone streets, which is another way of trying to understand Philadelphia. There is a battle going on in Philadelphia in, in, in 1976 and 1800, 1976-2000. It involves the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, who understand the verses. But how to portray Philadelphia, the Philadelphia story, as part of the American story? You've got your originalists. Yes? Right. So, 
this is the spot. Now, this shows a, a sort of a battle between what we might call those who wanted to return Philadelphia to originalism. That meant old bricks, the cobblestones, etc. And the sort of progressive uh, post-revolutionary architecture that wished to have um, a lot of um, concrete. And this is an example of the, what I would call the originalist cobblestone. No, you can't. You won't hardly walk over it. But it's on a spot right there that he lost his leg. Now, I'm not advocating that all of you, or even most teachers, curate the Constitution in the sense in which I've just done. Because I'm mad. I'm madly in love with the story. And stories are so connected. And I enjoy them. But I think stories like this are very, very important. It brings the founders alive to being people who are human and imperfect and having it's a, because you point out people's imperfections doesn't mean to say that you have to dismiss them. That is a very 20th century uh, position. And one with which I'll come straight forward and say, I disagree. It presumes that if we don't have perfection, there's no redemption. Or, now, in Morris's case, there was no redemption. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if, we, if we go back to the story, yeah, when he was there, I mean, I, I even offered to pay for a spot on that. This is where G. Morris lost his leg. But the, the Philadelphia folks didn't take me up on it. Um, so if we go down there, um, no, 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 I, I think it's a bit, a bit above. Uh, one, an author called uh, Van Doren, the great rehearsal, was that the rumor was that Guga Morris jumped from a balcony to avoid an irate husband. Must had to have his leg amputated. Van Duren, as does McDonald, who's another historian, says Morris actually lost his left leg being thrown from a carriage. According to Van Duren, there was no amorous balconies in Philadelphia. <laughs> a friend has said to the Britain to Morris that the loss, the loss of his leg might have a good effect on his morals, that is, his constitution since it would reduce his inclination to engage in the pleasures and dispensations of life into which young men are too apt to be led. The young Morris responded, you argue the matter so handsomely, I point out so clearly the advantages of being without legs, that I am almost tempted to part with the other. <laughs> John Jay, an author of the Federalist Papers, wrote to Morris, that he was tempted to wish that Morris had lost something else. <laughs> so, you know, I don't think by telling those stories, I have relegated the framers to idiots not worthy of respect. What I have tried to do is to restore the balance. And because I don't think the balance is treating them as maybe human beings, but the, the, but the attempt is to say that there is not much that's good about them, or not much that is human about them at all. So we're running from them being gods to being devils. And I'm trying to suggest that most of us, most of the time, are pretty decent, and that we have, uh, well not me, but a lot of you have temptation. <laughs> Age helps. So, um, all right. Well, so, so we jump, we jump, right? But that's the story of Bruno Mars. Well, let's go to let, let's go to um, the, the other side of the street. If we go to oh, I don't know, the other, no, right? Go up, not Robert. No, 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 no. That's where that graph house, by the way, is where is where Thomas Jefferson wrote the draft of the Declaration of Independence. And he moved there rather than the central hub. So he moved to the suburbs because it was less noisy to write the Declaration. 
Uh, if we move to my right, yeah, there, right there, Morris's townhouse. Uh, there are two Morris's. One is Gouverneur, the other is Robert. They're not related. But Robert Morris was the financier of the revolution who ended up in a debtor's prison. All right, that's what American story. And I think that should be curated and included as wanting a more perfect, but you cannot get a perfect. And are you willing to settle for an imperfect improvement or no improvement at all? And that's some tough choices, but we, as we grow older, we realize that's a lot of what we face in life. How sad. We thought when we grew older, those would disappear. They don't. If we click on Morris's townhouse, What? What am I supposed to put in? Did I see something wrong? Good. See, I have an audience here who, particularly a neighbor who is very, very aware. I'm very nervous for you because she doesn't think I have speaking talent <laughs> or the ability to respond to an audience, and she's so nervous for me. So if I say something wrong, she's going to go. Uh, anyway, <laughs> this is Robert Morris's townhouse. It's across the street from where Mrs. House's boarding house was. Am I boring you? No. Good. I'm finished here. <laughs> you see, curating is not an easy business. A, you have to know your stuff, and B, you have to know when to shut up. <laughs> which I'm not, as my neighbor says, not very good at. <laughs> All right. So Mrs. Mr. Morris's townhouse is was the most elegant house in Philadelphia. And when George Washington arrived with the Virginia delegation, he was prepared, according to that view. He was certainly, he had legends and myths and stories are part of curating. In order to balance out are you a good myth or a bad myth, in order to try to, you need to have a counter story, but not a counter story, in my opinion, you don't need a counter story to actually destroy the story. But rather to bring balance to the story, now wait a minute, Grandpa didn't catch a 17 foot fish. Right? He may have caught a six-foot fish, and not 17-foot. Because if I don't stop you in about 10 years' time, it will be 25 feet. <laughs> right? So that kind of balancing, whoa, wait, come on. I think it's, it's a good corrective. But saying, because he didn't, buy, he didn't get a 17-foot fish, and he promised to get a 17-foot fish, he didn't, he lied. Therefore, dismiss him because nothing that he says is the truth. That's not curated. That's destroyed. And I think that that is what I'm, I have difficulty with and working through. What is balancing and what is undermining? On this site, Robert Morris's townhouse, um, if, we, if we scroll down, you see, it was on one side was a women's restroom where Mrs. House's boarding house was, and the other side was a men's restroom, which is where Mr. Morris's townhouse was. So you got that building up there. And then they decided, they being whoever it is that's interested in 1987 and 2007 and all these anniversaries of, curate, of curation and creation, decide that. They need to do something with this house. Mr. Morris's house, where Washington stayed, is important for two reasons, other than he stayed there. One is, when the government, when the Constitution was formed, when the government moved to Philadelphia from New York, that became the presidential house. And later on, moved to Washington, D.C. to become 
the White House, maybe because of the water or the, the construction. But Mr. Morris's townhouse became the presidential house. That's where Washington did his farewell speech. That's where he issued proclamation of neutrality. Um, that's where Adams, after him, um, discussed that the Alien and Sedition Acts introduced them. A lot of things happened at that house. However, that was only one part of the story. The other part of the story is that when the digging took place in the site, slave bones were found. And um, so there was a, a dispute. And this is part of the American story. There was a dispute. Should we preserve this house as the presidential house and tell us, tell the public about all kinds of things that the first two presidents did here? Or shall we make it a story of slavery? And the answer is, it became a story of slavery. And you can read this as that. And it's called like the great contradiction. And it's it's open to the visitors 24 hours a day because it's not enclosed. And it's visited very, very often, probably by one of the top 10 visitors who take young, young children to national archives and they kick each other in the shins and don't worry about what's going on. And this was another one. That did. And the story is, this is not really... Um, the presidential house it is a slave house. This is where Hercules, which is one of Washington's slaves, well, how, how, could, how could that happen? Very complicated. In Philadelphia, slavery had ended. But Philadelphia was also a capital in which, quote, foreign nations like Virginia could come. And as a consequence, you had you um, are a citizen of this state under the laws thereof. And foreigners or foreign states were not governed by Philadelphia laws. So that you had that, that certain southern folks brought in slaves, even though slavery was not permitted. He said, well, well, say, well why? Why, or why permit them in? And, and the answer is because Philadelphia was not only a city in Pennsylvania, it was the capital of a nation in which, in, in, in which there were both slavery and non-slavery. And what do you do in a capital? Uh, we face that all the time. We face it here, right now. I mean, are you a, are you a, a, a citizen? What is a, who's a natural born citizen today? You're born under the jurisdiction thereof. Okay, so the house became a story of slavery. And it is in the shadow of the Declaration of Independence being written in Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell. And so it creates a, a contentious American story about slavery, the first presidency, the second presidency, Declaration of Independence, and Liberty Hall, all on that corner. You could spend an entire hour on that corner just reflecting about what does it mean to curate the Constitution and curate America when you don't, when a lot of the evidence has been lost or selected. And I'm not talking about conspiracies, I'm just talking about decisions that are made. For example, for example, uh, a bunch of teachers I was using, I was talking about the Constitution, they said, but we can remember the preamble. Well, that's good. At least you remember part of the Constitution. Because I had a copy, so I could always check. And they said, well, we, we remember it from, what is it, Jailhouse Rock or Trump? What's that? Schoolhouse Rock. And so tell me, how does Schoolhouse Rock go? They remembered it, right? Oh, come on. You don't have to be in tune. Tell me, what, what does it say? We the people. We the people in order to form a proper what's missing? Of the United States. It doesn't say that. It, it just 
people in order. It doesn't say we the people of the United States. That's completely dry. And you say, well, so what? Oh, well, you have just uncurated a whole century of war and this, that, and the other, and you have... So, it's wonderful that the teachers know that rock song. <laughs> but there's something missing. Where was I? Click on 
we will see that that's what the city tavern looked like back in 1787. Today, you go down, this is what the city tavern looks like. Looks pretty darn close to what it looked like. The menu is a replica. The dress is a replica. That is, this is an attempt not to become postmodern or deny the, 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 the architecture of the founding, but to try to replicate it. This is sort of like originalism architecture. So, um, and it's in this building that the framers uh, said we all, Washington in his diary said, we all gave a cordial leave of each other and went to the tavern. Okay, now I managed to retrieve a menu in my, in, in, in my various pursuits. And when I was younger, it was very exciting. I retrieved this menu. It said September the 15th. All right, 55 gentlemen, there were 55 people who were there at the convention. And I thought I had discovered the menu for George Washington farewell dinner and the framers. It turned out that I had discovered the menu of the day before. And that becomes part of the problem of curating. What happens if you don't? But you include that in your story and show that you can make errors. But I have done subsequent research which indicates that the menu didn't change that much from day to day. If we were to look and see what uh, the, the, the keep going down, is it where, where do we find? Oh, we don't. We won't find. We won't find George. We won't find the menu there, will we? It's in resources. Let's go to resources and the farewell of. Resources, exhibits, resources. Uh, search for menu tavern. All right, there you go. That's an entertainment of worship. All right, there you go. Oh, so here is here's the here's the uh, the menu that I managed to retrieve. Fifty five gentlemen's dinners and fruits, relishes, olives, etc. Twenty pounds, twelve and six. Fifty four bottles of Madeira. Somebody got lost. <laughs> Twenty pounds. 60 bottles of claret. I guess somebody got a little extra. Eight, bo eight bottles of, of old stock, 22 bottles of porter, eight bottles of cider, 12 bottles of beer, seven large bowels of punch. Spelling was not part of the <laughs> speciality. We shall not curate that one. Cigars, which I don't think is, maybe that's how it was spelled then, but. Uh, Spermacity, candles, etc. Too. This is what I like to decanters, wine glasses, and tumblers broken. <laughs> and again, onwards with the revolution. This is, we're not French. No, we're American. Have a drink. Not off with their heads. Have a drink. The 16 servants. See, this is what I love about America. The servants get paid. It's not servitude as it was in Europe. This is a new country. We pay. We even write in the Constitution, we pay our representatives. Right? We're paying 16 bottles of claret for 16 servants and musicians. Five bottles of Madeira, seven bulls of punch. <laughs> and so that is the bill, 89 pounds. If we come down uh, and uh, and I managed to figure this out in 2018. Uh, it has 2011 up there. Stop. So, yeah. so that bill came to $15,400 in 2011 money. I've now figured it just before I came, but I couldn't get it corrected on, on the, on the uh, site. In 2019, it is seven, something like $19,000. So that was a dinner worth $19,000, including the musicians and the service. Now here, in addition to that, people got paid, the musicians got paid, separately. So George Christian, what a pound, Mr. Schultz, Mr. Turner, John Kaiser, William Hartle, Kenneth Crossman, 
David Gunstrock, John Mueller, Conrad Spackenberg. What the heck are these Germans doing there? <laughs> Mr. Christmas 15th down relative, who's also called George, writes to me and says, what do you know about grand, 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 George Christmas? And I say, anything that you're going to tell me. <laughs> and it turns out that he and the others were mercenaries hired by the British, German mercenaries to fight the Revolutionary War and got caught. And they got put in an American prison. And in 1783, when the war was over, and the idea was reparations, exchanges, prisoners of war, etc., this group decided not to leave America. They loved American prison food. <laughs> but they loved to stay in America. And I think that's an incredible story, a story of hope, a story of curating that shows in prison in 1783, German immigrants play at George Washington's farewell. That is an American story that's worth telling and retelling, and I doubt it will occur in any other country in the world. So however much we hear criticism of America, and we hear it often, we ought to remember that never before in the history of the world had 55 people sat down to write a constitution, deliberated up and down the country, Germans playing at the farewell address, a party, and not a drop of blood was spilled. Never before in the history of the world. Isn't that something worth curating? Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at TAH.org webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.